I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm joined by Rory Scoson, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Stirling, who has a piece in the current issue of the LRB that takes a historical look at the realignments in Scottish politics over the last century or so. It's a review of politics and the people, Scotland 1945-79 to by Malcolm Petrie, which he describes as a tale of unintended consequences that challenges received wisdom. Hello Rory and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, thanks very much for having me on. In 1968, Tom Nairn criticised what he called the common myth of Scottish leftness, questioning the idea that Scotland was inherently a politically radical country. But if it is a myth, it's a very resilient one. Is there some truth behind it? I would say there's a, a very obvious electoral truth behind it, which is what tends to substantiate it in, in popular discourse. I mean, if you if you challenge anyone on it, they can just point to a, a map of Britain's political geography and, and it, it will show parties broadly on the centre-left doing significantly better in Scotland than in England. Uh, generally speaking, if you, if you top them up as national units, Scotland votes to the left of England. And that's been the case since 1959. Where it becomes complicated is if you, is if you break it down by comparable regions. So if you compare Scotland with, for instance, parts of the north of England, there's not a huge difference in electoral performance, although you still do see some interesting differences if you break it down by class. So in Scotland, typically middle-class people have been more likely to vote for centre-left parties than even parts of the north of England, where you'll find middle-class people voting to the right of their Scottish comparators. So so there's, there is some pretty interesting electoral sociology to back it up in terms of voting behaviour. The question is always, why are people voting that way? And one of the answers that, people, that sociologists have, have come up with is that people in Scotland vote left because it's the Scottish thing to do. That the more Scottish you feel, the more Scottish you identify as, the more likely you are to vote to the left or to identify as more left wing. It's kind of part of this new package of, of being Scottish. And I would say that quite a lot of that has been constructed over the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years, that identity of being Scottish means being to the left of England. But crucially, it's always a way of proving difference. It's a way of performing your national identity at the ballot box by going, well, it's, it's a Scottish thing to do, to vote to the left of England. In terms of the way Scotland's governed, again, you, you, can, you can say that Scotland has generally, since devolution, been governed to the left of England. In terms of public policy, you've seen a greater favourability towards universalism, in uh, the social state, uh, in terms of raising benefits, as soon as those were devolved to Scotland, they became slightly more generous north of the border in terms of priority towards public ownership. But that's been largely during a time when the Conservatives have been in office. So 
when Labour were in government in Scotland and England, uh, both Holyrood and Westminster, even the Scottish Labour Party was trying occasionally to go slightly to the left of UK Labour, but it wasn't such a huge difference then. That was possibly part of why the Scottish Labour Party was replaced by the SNP, because they weren't good enough at proving their difference from Westminster. But so much of that idea of Scotland being left-wing comes down to relativity. Uh, We are more left-wing than England, which in recent years has been a low bar. So when you're thinking about Scottish leftness, it's always worth about thinking of it in terms of clearing a fairly low set of standards compared to a country that has elected the Conservatives really quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's often said that Labour can't win at Westminster without Scotland. I mean, that isn't in fact true, that when Labour has won a majority of UK seats, it has often won a majority of English seats. But I think what is true is it hasn't formed a government without happening to have a majority of Scottish seats. But that may change next year. Well, it's, it's, got, it's got pretty interesting recently uh, because obviously the latest polling suggests Labour could potentially win a majority in England without Scotland or win something close to it without Scotland and make up the numbers with the Liberal Democrats while the SNP still win most of the seats in Scotland. Uh, at which point Labour will be, well, their, their plan is what Keir Starmer says is they will simply refuse to do any deal with the SNP because of the SNP's view on independence. Meaning that for the first time in history, Britain is faced with a Labour government at Westminster, which has, in the words that were once used by Labour to describe the Conservatives, Labour would have no mandate in Scotland uh, relative to its mandate in England. This would be unprecedented and, and a very strange situation, particularly for Scotland, which claims to be the, the bit that votes to the left of the UK. And, and it would then be up to Keir Starmer, you know, up to the Labour Party down south to, to prove that they could govern perhaps to the left of the SNP in Scotland, which would be extremely hard to do. And, and a lot of that's to do with the kind of deeper structures that underpin that sense of Scottish leftness, part of which I would say is about the media, that in England there really is this rabidly right-wing uh, media that, that obviously sells newspapers in Scotland as well and sells them fairly effectively. If you look at, for instance, Daily Mail readership in Scotland, it's, it's not particularly low, but they don't have the same grip on public discourse as they do in England, that kind of right-wing media establishment. And I think that that plays a fairly big role in the kind of games that politicians have to play and who they have to speak to. Whereas one of the reasons, of course, Starmer cannot possibly say he'll do a deal with the SNP is because the media wouldn't let it. You know, he, he simply would be instantly accused of, of selling out the union. And, and, and that's the kind of culture that, that they're working with down south. And it's, it's just not quite the same up here, I would say. But I mean, for instance, you know, Nicola Sturgeon didn't have to perform this rejection of the left of her party that, that Starmer has to do with the Labour Party to get any kind of hearing from the media. The same goes for Hamza Youssef, who is, if anything, slightly to the left of Sturgeon. You know, the, the SNP are governing with the Greens, who, if the media down south got any wind of their existence, which often they, they forget about, they would be absolutely horrified of the things that like green MSPs say and and you know I don't think the Labour Party would would get away with it in the same way that the SNP have and again I think a lot of that's about political culture and the media's role in it. You you quote in the piece uh, what you call a disgruntled Labour MSP George Fulkes complaining in the early days of the SNP's first government that they were only adopting left-wing policies 
sort of as a, as a ploy, as a way to get credibility in Scotland, because they're what they really wanted is is independence. I mean, what are the SNP's goals? I would say there are now, th- well, there's always been two objectives of the SNP on their membership cards. It says something like, I mean, the, the aims of the party are essentially to advance the interests of Scotland and to get independence. It's already interesting that they've distinguished those things. But that, but now they're in government. You know, another objective is to stay in government. And they've worked out a way internally of thinking about this as, well, the way we stay in government is by building support, building a perception of ourselves as competent. Once we've done that, people will be more inclined to support independence. And I think that's true. I think that's broadly true. The SNP's strategy since the 1990s, the reason they support devolution, the reason they supported a Scottish Parliament, which took them a long time to come around to, um, because they thought they initially thought it was a kind of, well, for a long time, they thought it was a kind of trap designed to keep Scotland in the Union, which essentially it was. They eventually decided to support it because they thought that they could use devolution to prove their competency, to demonstrate that Scotland could effectively govern itself on some things, therefore why not others? And they used that to build support for independence. As we see from the rise in support for independence over the last 30 years, that has essentially worked. Um, I would say they've done a pretty good job of seeing that strategy through. The problem is you hit a ceiling in terms of getting to independence, which is still a scary leap from devolution. One of the reasons they've been able to build up that sense of competency and uh, Scotland's capacity to govern itself is because they didn't frighten the horses. They got into power and they said, this isn't going to be too transformational. We are a fairly safe pair of hands. We're going to do some some things that, that you'll like. We're going to make some unpopular decisions. We're going to be responsible. And that kind of politics can get you over the 50% mark in electoral support occasionally. I mean, they, they've, they've had some extraordinary results um, in, in elections. But it's very hard to keep everyone on board all the time. And so they've never been able to really push it up to the continuous level of 60% support for independence that even they say is what's really needed to get the UK government to agree to another referendum. I think part of that is because no matter how hard you spin independence, it is a fairly drastic change. And to get a drastic change, you need a a deeper spirit of like self-sacrifice in your nationalism. And all of their positioning around we're competent, we're safe, is about stripping out that fairly fundamentalist form of nationalism. A nationalism that's easy, that's convenient, that doesn't require too much from anyone. The problem is to get things over the line, you actually need that. And so instead of geeing up that form of nationalism, a kind of populist, a transformational nationalism, they've taken a much more electoralist route that's about creating a, a nice, safe, slow, moderate gradualism that cannot actually get you over the line. And so they're stuck with this paradox. In order to get into government, to prove Scotland's capacity to govern itself, they have to prune all the slightly scarier, but also more powerful edges of their politics. And in doing so, they make it much harder to actually make that big leap at the end of the day, once they've built up all this support. And it would be a bigger leap now after Brexit than it would have been in 2014. Yeah, and here's another paradox, because there was this huge rise in support for independence. Not immediately after Brexit, it actually went went down after Brexit, but after Boris Johnson was elected Prime Minister, on 
that big get Brexit done platform, people in Scotland, I think, thought, you know, this is the kind of Brexit we feared. And we saw a huge rise in support for independence after that. So on the one hand, Brexit was a great recruiting agent, uh, certainly that form of Brexit. On the other hand, if you actually spell out what independence means after Brexit, it means a hard border with England. As long as England is pursuing a harder, a harder Brexit, it would be very hard for Scotland to rejoin the EU and maintain the same trading relationship with England that we currently have, which is a completely open one. And also, you know, there's a lot of people in Scotland with families south of the border. Like the whole, that whole idea of creating a real border there is tricky. And, and you, Scotland does not have the kind of special circumstances that would allow it to have a Northern Ireland style solution. Not that that's been easy either, but it, it's not the kind of thing that Scotland could push for in the same way as, as they have in Ireland. But of course, when Britain went into the common market, when it joined the EC in 1973, the SNP was against joining, right? So that put its position on Europe, that party's position on Europe has changed completely in the last Absolutely. Years. And Malcolm Petrie's book is really valuable in adding a real emphasis on the SNP's distinctive position on Europe as part of their success. That this is when the SNP really started to discover their ability to speak against this sort of three-headed Westminster monster, where they could say, we are the only party that is clearly opposed to entry to the EEC. At a time when Scotland, broadly speaking, was more opposed to EEC entry than England. And there was a lot of fear in the run-up to the referendum in 1975 that if the results of the referendum were divided up by nation. And there was a lot of debate within the government about whether or not to do this. Initially, they, they weren't going to do it. They were going to release an all-Britain result that wasn't subdivided, and they were eventually persuaded otherwise. And there was a real fear and, and some optimism in the SNP that this result would show that Scotland wanted to, wanted to stay outside of the EEC or leave it, and England wanted to stay in. And so the, the SNP realised the political potential of that divide of them being able to say, look, Scotland wants one thing, England wants another. They had this uh, argument about how EEC membership was going to crush Scotland's distinctive identity, uh, that it was that joining the EEC was a violation of the Treaty of Union because Scotland hadn't been hadn't consented to this radical change in the constitution, which was essentially a change to the union. And so they were able to argue that the EEC was a threat to the distinctiveness and autonomy of Scottish institutions which had been ostensibly protected within the EEC. They were able to use that argument uh, again during the uh, local government reforms when the, the, the Wheatley Commission radically altered the, the structure of local government, which again, the SNP were able to say this is eroding Scotland's distinctive institutional setup. And then they argued it again in the 80s when Thatcherism involved a huge amount of centralisation. They were able to say, again, Scotland's institutions are being overrun by a government that Scotland didn't vote for. And so time and time again, the SNP were able to say, look, we alone are standing against this British consensus. Although, of course, in the 80s, Labour were able to stake out their own claim and very successfully, finally, worked out how to speak for Scotland against Westminster. But it was the SNP who really started to pioneer that in the 70s. Um, by saying we are distinct from all the other parties and Europe was one of the ways they did that. So interestingly enough, it's now flipped where you've got 
at least Labour and the Conservatives accepting Brexit and the S&P are going very hard on the fact that Keir Starmer has said Brexit's done for more free movement. And, and so th- they're pulling the same trick. They've just flipped the, flipped the politics. Going back a bit further, you talk in the piece about how strong support for the union was in the decades after the Second World War. And perhaps that's been slightly forgotten about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this is the, one of the major challenges people make against that myth of Scottish leftness is that the only party to win over 50%, you know, the S&P got very, very close. I think it was like 49.7% or something. Whereas 1955, the Unionist Party won just over 50% of the vote. I mean, it was, a, it was an alliance of the Unionists and the National Liberals, but they were kind of dissolving into each other at that point. So they won over 50% of the vote in Scotland, which was a Unionist stronghold in theory in 1955. And so how do we explain this? How do we uh, understand a country that has shifted from being a technically a majority centre-right country in the mid-50s to, by the 1980s, a party that was an absolute Labour stronghold, just painted red? And one of the answers, I mean, Malcolm's answer to this is that Scotland has this strong individualist tradition that, that kind of goes against that modern instinct to say we're a collectivist country, that the unionists were able to tap into a sense of individualism, a a Scottish liberal tradition, with the help of the national liberals, of course, a sense of individualism that was threatened by the big new bureaucratic state. And they were able to combine that sense of individual liberty with a sense of national rights, that they did a good job in in the 50s of appealing to a sort of Scottish patriotism that was not in any means separatism, that was certainly not pro-independence by any means. And in fact, as far as the unionists were concerned, wasn't even pro-home rule, wasn't even pro-devolution, but had a sense that Scotland was a distinctive thing within the union, had distinctive values, and they were able to tie together that sense of the individual being threatened by the, and not just the individual, but this, you know, the small town community as well. That was being threatened by Labour's new bureaucratic behemoth. Um, And so there was a lot of anti-socialism in that appeal, which tied together unionism, which became the Conservative Party, and people who would be instinctively liberal supporters. And so that mix of uh, appeals to nation and individual liberty helped the unionists at first. What Malcolm Petrie then goes on to explain is how they kind of released an idea about Scotland being threatened by Westminster that could be picked up by other parties as well. Does that explain the disappearance of liberalism in Scotland as a political force? I, I think one of, the, one of the stories of liberalism across Britain, not just in Scotland, is that their failure, their decline has been, it's been one of the kind of side effects of their success, that, that liberalism has, has become fairly hegemonic across British politics in many ways. And the ability of all the other parties to pick up on aspects of it has doomed the Liberals to, to a degree of irrelevance. Obviously, they still hold up in pockets. Uh, in Scotland, they were always relatively strong at key points in their history. A lot of that has been about their relationship to land reform in the Highlands and Islands, where you know, you'll get people 100 years later saying, they're voting for the they're voting for the Liberal Party because of what they did for the Crofters in the nineteenth century, and I think 
that liberal strain in Scotland, you know, some of it's mixed up with, I would say, a, a kind of idea of religious nonconformism in some cases and an idea of a particular idea of radicalism that is not necessarily collectivist, that is, is the, the liberty of the individual against the state. So a kind of 18th century Republican radicalism and that the liberals have always been able to kind of hold on to. Recently, and I would say unfortunately, uh, the Liberal Democrats in Scotland have, have fumbled that a little bit. They certainly did not benefit from the coalition, which was disastrous for the Lib Dems in Scotland. I mean, after 2010, they just plummeted. And that is a big part of the SNP's success. Uh, in 2011, the SNP picked up a huge number of Liberal Democrat voters. And the Lib Dems have made a, a modest recovery since then, and actually a fairly significant recovery in some places. In Edinburgh, for instance, uh, they've picked up a lot of councillors in the past few years, but they're still struggling to regain a kind of identity. And this is this has been the story again throughout the twentieth century. You know, they had this real comeback in the nineteen sixties. Uh, the Liberal Party uh, they started to win by elections. They were doing very well. David Steele was emerging as a very prominent politician. Uh, Joe Grimmond was the, the leader UK-wide of, of the Liberals, uh, the, who was the MP for Orkney. And then they got squeezed again by the SNP. Uh, they were pro-home rule. The SNP were, were pro-independence. There was a lot of talk in the 60s of a deal between the SNP and the Liberals. But as the SNP started to improve their organisation, pick up support, as they were able to uh, distinguish themselves on Europe, on local government reform, it was the SNP who benefited from unionist decline. Um, and in fact, the return of the Liberals splitting the unionist vote also helped Labour to outmanoeuvre the, conser the Conservative vote in Scotland and begin to win first-past-the-post seats where the, the old anti-socialist coalition vote that Malcolm Petrie talks about, that began to fragment. And that was a huge part of, of um, Labour's uh, surge ahead of... of uh, the right in Scotland. So that that 1959 is this really key date in that story of electoral differentiation from England because it's when the Conservative vote goes up in England and it goes down in Scotland and, and uh, Labour starts to pick up in Scotland and so you have this sudden divergence between Scotland shifting to the left, England shifting to the right. And what uh, Petrie's book argues is that this is while this has generally been put down to Scotland actually shifting left, uh, it's actually more about the coalition that was behind the Unionists in Scotland, which was a coalition of Unionist and Liberal voters, an anti-socialist coalition. That actually just fragments because the Liberals start to improve their performance. They start to challenge with the Unionists in important seats and Labour are the beneficiaries of that. Then it starts to spiral. The Unionists kind of lose their mojo uh, they try to rebrand themselves as the Conservative and Unionist Party. They try to get on board with modernization. Um, and all of this further alienates some of their more liberal-minded voters who are frustrated by conservatism seemingly joining that post-war consensus, coming on board with some form of a bigger state, higher taxation. And so there's a degree of middle-class discontent with unionism in Scotland that's channeled into the, the Liberals, but also increasingly into the SNP, because the SNP are also able to pick up on that story of Scotland being neglected, the little man being ignored by this new big bureaucratic state. Right, So that which is not, it's not an argument from the left, which it might appear to be from there. 
So the S&P in the 60s are very interesting, ideologically speaking, because they are trying not to be left or right. Uh, they're rejecting class politics, but they're, they're rejecting the big states. They're saying small is beautiful. They're saying power should rest in communities. They are generally opposed to nationalization. They evolve during the 60s in a more social democratic direction, partly because there's this big influx of young activists who are often involved with the campaign for nuclear disarmament, who are involved in the folk revival, who are quite radical on the left, um, new university graduates after that big expansion of the university population. So you get this big wave of uh, upwardly mobile young left-wingers who are bringing in some fairly new ideas about participatory democracy, community empowerment, who have a more non-aligned perspective in the Cold War. I would say even those activists are sceptical of the big state. You know, this is a kind of left-wing, it's left-wing politics, but it's a kind of left-wing politics which is disillusioned with centralization planning, with what they see as a faceless labor bureaucracy. You know, some of these activists are explicitly comparing what they call labor's corporatism with Mussolini. They're saying this is just as dangerous as conservatism. This is just another form of bureaucratic alienation. And so it's a different kind of left-wing politics that even these people are, are espousing. But within the SNP, certainly within the old guard of the SNP, it, I wouldn't say it's particularly left-wing at all. Uh, Winnie Ewing, for instance, who wins that uh, a famous by-election in the Labour safe seat of Hamilton in 1967, she's very much on the right of the party and spends a decent chunk of her career actively battling the more radical left-wing activists internally. And in fact, you know, Fergus Ewing, the latest of the Ewing dynasty is a backbench MSP today and is still waging a kind of backbench war on the SNP leadership over them being too interventionist, too centralizing, uh, too left-wing. Um, and so there, there is this still this strain within the SNP that's always been there, which is localist, pro-enterprise, as they would say, sees left and right as a, a dated distinction that the SNP should move beyond, be a party for the whole nation. So there should be space for Labour or whoever to criticise the SNP from the left. If you look at how, at how the left in Scotland criticises the SNP, it's usually in terms of uh, why aren't the SNP intervening more in the economy? Why aren't they doing more to create economic sovereignty, to build up the economic conditions for independence? To um, Why are they still using something like a public-private partnership why are they publicly owned? So, for instance, they set up a Scottish National Investment Bank, which was supposed to be kind of mission-driven, supposed to be about driving public investment, and then they farmed it out to private consultancies to run it. Then when they nationalised the Ferguson Marine shipyards, which is supposed to build the ferries to replace the crumbling fleet that services the islands, which are absolute lifelines to, to the islands off the west coast of Scotland, the shipyard is just failing to produce ferries. And the, the typical critique of this is, oh, the SNP are just incompetent at running these things, or they're too neoliberal to understand how to do state ownership properly and to do state in intervention properly. And I think this completely misses the point about what's happened in the last 50 years of Scottish politics, which is that after a wave after wave of, first of all, centralising the management of the British economy at Whitehall, which happened essentially after the Second World War, then offshoring the management of the Scottish private sector to 
places like America and Japan, which happened from the 60s onwards, known as branch plant syndrome. And then through just cutting the state and the kind of professional managerial class to shreds through neoliberalism, this has smashed up the old conveyor belts of administrative capacity in Scotland, whether it's through concentrating it in London or concentrating it in overseas uh, corporate headquarters. Scotland, I don't think, still produces enough competent public administrators to actually make a decent fist of a proper social democratic project. I think this is probably the case UK-wide, actually, and is one of the main problems Labour will face getting back into power. But it's especially problematic in Scotland, where we have so so many fewer people than England. You just don't have the talent pool. Um, if you add into that restrictions on immigration, it's hard to even import people who can who can actually run things properly. I think a huge problem we have with running all this stuff, whether it's you know building ships properly through the state, whether it's running an investment bank, whether it's making the public sector work properly. You know, the skills shortage that's a real problem in Scotland is is not amongst the workers, it's amongst the managers. I think the civil service is really limited in what it can actually practically do. If you look at the SNP, their special advisors, last I checked, are mostly public relations people. Even the last Labour Scottish government had special advisors who actually were policy people, who had experience in the world of policy, in the world of the Labour movement. You know, the trade unions used to be one of the main conveyor belts of people into government who actually knew how to make things work and to build things and so on. You just don't have those people anymore in Scotland. There's so there's a kind of historical sociology of incompetency in this country when it comes to public management, which makes the, the government dangerously dependent on the private sector, whether it's in terms of consultants coming in to, to develop government projects or just outright privatisation or at least cowardice about nationalisation it's because they don't know how to do it but no one again it's it's that same problem no one wants to admit this because it's it sounds it would take decades to build up that capacity again but it also makes you wonder how easy would it be to to make independence work if this is what we've got to work with if we can't build a ferry yeah ian jack wrote a long piece about the calmac ferry scandal in the lrb last year and i mean in that He said that in 1891, there were 40 shipyards on the Clyde that launched 336 vessels in in a single year. And something we haven't really talked about yet is there is this long history of trade union politics, class politics, as it were, traditional left-wing politics, which perhaps gets overplayed in conversations about Scotland, but it can't be discounted altogether. No, absolutely not. And and it's, it's almost because that story has so possessed Scotland's political imagination for so long that we're getting accounts like Malcolm Petrie's book, which is an attempt to address the imbalance in the historiography, to say, look, this this rise of a kind of red Scotland was not inevitable. This was a result of far more nuanced dynamics within politics. Uh, so this is not this kind of, not necessarily this deep sociological bubbling up of Scotland's innate socialist soul it's it's something much more contingent on successful and failed political manoeuvres by political parties playing games, doing politics. Of course, the other side of that story is still there. You know, the Labour Party has been enormously successful in Scotland. I mean, in, in 1966, they did almost win 50% of the votes. They've absolutely dominated in first-past-the-post elections. 
um, and their vote has been concentrated in the most populous area of Scotland. If, if you look at the central belt, it's just red for a huge chunk of Scotland's political history. And that's where most of the people live. Now, as soon as we got proportional representation, Labour's actual popularity was kind of revealed as, as, as not quite as substantial. The first Scottish executive uh, after devolution was a coalition between Labour and Liberal Democrats. And the SNP have gradually supplanted them across those central belt seats. But it's worth wondering how much of Labour's success in Scotland is to do with people being socialists. That if you look at the way that the left, uh, that left-wing intellectuals are, are talking about Labour's success in the 70s and the 80s, they're incredibly frustrated with the insistence of the Scottish working class on voting for a wildly disappointing Labour Party. The, the loyalty of the, the especially Central Belt Scotland towards the Labour Party is a source of angst for a lot of Scotland's left-wing thinkers and activists during this time, precisely because they think it allows Labour to take the working class for granted. You know, they're, they're not happy with what they see as a centrist or, or centre-right Labour Party. They're frustrated that, you know, the agency of the Scottish working class, that, that they have this kind of myth of Red Clyde side, they want to bring this back. They're thinking, well, this is all being wasted because it's getting channeled into just voting Labour at every election. And actually, Malcolm Petrie's previous book, which is on interwar politics in Scotland, um, and he talks about the decline of the radical left, the decline of that kind of grassroots, more direct activism in Scotland, which usually manifests itself through the Independent Labour Party, the Communist Party, and how that gets supplanted by a more electoralist national labour politics, which is directed through parliament rather than you know agitation on the streets. And so that's, that's the legacy that, that a lot of left-wingers in Scotland now kind of lament that this is gone, that Scotland is now this kind of bland moderate, very electoralist country that will vote for very disappointing centre-left parties, whether there be Labour or the SNP. And I, I think we might be due a, a bit of revisionism about the nature of Labour's support in Scotland as well. Uh, there is a good book by Jerry Hassan and Eric Shaw called The Strange Death of Labour Scotland, which goes into that and identifies it as more corporatist. This is about the fact that the Labour Party controlled council housing, that they had extremely effective political machines in local government that they were able to kind of dominate thanks to first past the post and became the obvious option for centre-left voters. And first past the post obviously shut out most alternatives. But there's also something to be said about, you know, what are the actual popular attitudes underpinning this? Red Clydeside didn't succeed. It didn't produce a revolution across Scotland as people wanted. How radical are the Scottish people themselves? And I would say not very radical, at least in socialist terms. I would say they are quite liberal. That is the continuous thread running through Scottish electoral behaviour. They will vote for parties which are liberal, whether it's the Liberals, Labour, the SNP, the Unionists. All these parties performed a very strong sense of liberalism at, at some, in some way or another, but very few of them were radical socialists. And in terms of, I mean, looking ahead to the next UK general election, probably in about a year from now, are the SNP likely to hold all their seats? No, uh, in a word. <laughs> I think the SNP will lose seats. I would be very, very surprised if they sustain the kind of performance they've put in at previous elections. 
regardless of the fallout from Nicola Sturgeon's departure and what eventually comes out of the police investigation into the party's finances, and regardless of you know whether the party can stay united under Hamza Youssef, Nicola Sturgeon was an extremely good politician. She was uh, smarter than most of her opponents. She was a very good speaker, excellent media performer. She had a, a, a kind of natural talent for sounding relatable. She was extremely good at, when you watched her on TV, people would see her as speaking on their behalf. I think she had this ability to, to capture the slightly, uh, I don't quite know how to express it, but there's this sort of combination of, of being slightly restrained and also slightly on the edge of losing your temper that to me just seems very Scottish. Um, and she was extremely good at doing it. And I think people really did love her for it. Obviously, a lot of other people really didn't like her for that as well. And there's a lot to be, there's a lot more research to be done on the actual nature of Sturgeon's divisiveness. But she was an enormous asset to the party. And I, I think they'll struggle to replicate that. Uh, Hamza Youssef has struggled in his first few weeks. You know, he's inherited a party that suddenly became very divided and had no idea how to process it. The extent of the S the SNP's discipline was so solid for so long. It really did start to fall apart under Sturgeon, but it was so solid for so long that they never developed a way of, of doing it, of doing internal conflict. You know, the Labour Party has a tried and tested method of doing internal conflict, which is ju they just expel everyone on one side. They just they just actively suppress one side of the debate, and it's 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 the left. But but even then, you know, they have factions. They have a degree of open factional culture in the Labour Party that can conduct debates without everyone losing their minds. They have conferences for these factions. The SNP doesn't have any of this. And as soon as they start getting established, people get terrified. Uh, and, and the media dives on it and says, look, the SNP's divided all of a sudden. Whereas when Labour does this, increasingly people, people barely notice because it's just factored in. Um, so the SNP is going to have real trouble just keeping up that same image of an of a extremely united, competent, confident party. I mean, they've completely lost their lost their confidence um, since Sturgeon left. Understandably, I mean, the, the, the Sturgeon stuff and all the fallout from her resignation has consumed the whole you know, establishment of the party. Um, so it's, it's going to be really hard for them to, to get back to where they were. So they will lose seats. The question is how many? And there's a decent chance that they'll be squeezed as well, because if they're if they're fighting the Labour Party and the Conservative, if they're fighting the Conservatives in their rural seats, where it's always been close, those old unionist heartlands that Petrie talks about that became SNP seats, they're still on the margins between SNP and Conservatives in some cases. They're also fighting Labour in the central belt still, but they're also getting squeezed by the Green Party uh, in the proportional side of Scotland's Holyrood electoral system. So if they get squeezed on both sides by the Greens and the Labour and the SNP and the Lib Dems on the other side, they could really lose quite a lot of seats, I think. So does that mean as well that, in your view, the prospects of, of independence are receding? Yes. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I think the SNP were playing a very risky game with their most recent strategic developments, which was to take it to court, to take a their, their right to have a referendum to court. I would say it was the best option available to them, partly because they had a huge amount of demand internally to push things and they needed to maintain morale amongst the troops. Yeah, the fact is that they can't, they can't do it. You know, that this is, this is the, the problem that the SNP face that I mentioned earlier, which is that 
you can build up all the electoral support you like, but if you can't get people to actually take to the streets, how are you going to force the Conservatives to give you a referendum? There's just no way of doing it. Westminster gets to decide, and that is a fact. And we saw that in the court case. They couldn't, you know, whip up the people into some kind of disruptive movement to get a referendum because, frankly, nobody is particularly interested in that kind of nationalism in Scotland. And so what they had to do is attempt to do it through the British state, which we already knew was hostile to this idea. And so the, the Supreme Court said, the Scottish government doesn't have a right to have a referendum. And the SNP said, well, <laughs> I guess this just proves that the UK doesn't care about us. So you should vote for us again. So it's back to the first step, you know. And after a certain amount of time, that runs out of road. So there's no, there's no next steps for them. You know, Hamza Youssef, when he became leader, he said, well, I will ask the UK government for a Section 30 order to have a referendum. I mean, it's the same thing they do every time. And they, the UK government says no. Their hope now, so Stephen Flynn, who's their leader at Westminster, made a speech recently where he said there was a chance that if there's a Labour minority where they, the Labour and the Lib Dems don't have enough to form a majority and they're reliant on the SNP, then the SNP can get a referendum. And this does seem to be the latest thinking, that the SNP will only support a Labour-Lib Dem government in exchange for an independence referendum. Now, Labour know exactly what they're going to do in that situation. They're going to say no, and they're going to dare the SNP to bring down the government and risk another Conservative government, at which point the SNP would presumably be very badly punished by the Scottish voters. I think that's a perfectly sensible strategy from the Labour Party. Obviously, I, I think Scotland should should be given a referendum. Uh, I think that's a basic democratic rights. Uh, pro-referendum parties have won several elections in a row now, but Labour don't have that much to lose from just saying no, in the same way that the Conservatives don't have that much to lose from saying no at this point. They, their Labour strategy was to sit and wait until the SNP fall apart. That is happening. And now they can probably get away with saying the same thing as the Conservatives, unless the SNP makes some kind of comeback under a, a Labour government. But even then, I mean, we're, we're looking, unless something wild happens in the next five years. For instance, another Conservative majority. If the Conservatives win another majority, there will be an enormous amount of agitation for Scottish independence. That would be the kind of thing that could push support for independence above 60%, at which point it probably does become harder for the Tories to say no. I think maybe there's a world in which the Conservatives could get really Machiavellian and say, right, if we want to rebuild, you know, if they have a disaster at the last election, the Conservatives decide their only route back to power is by shedding Scotland, by saying, let's get rid of them, they never vote for us. Maybe then they could support an independence referendum. But if Starmer proves that Labour can actually do well in England, then even that might be off the table. So... I just don't see an obvious route, even in the next 10 years, to independence, despite how inevitable it has seemed for so long. And I still think it will happen eventually. I think that the underlying gravity of the British state is going towards some kind of breakup, whatever form that takes. I'm not sure independence, is, independence itself is likely. What is likely, I think, is, is, is more devolution. And, and that will create its own dynamics, one of which could be in England. So if greater English devolution creates to a greater regionalisation of English politics, you might get a, ten, a trajectory towards a more confederal arrangement across the UK.
but uh, you know this is this is one of the things you know you have to go into these this world of weird vague speculation to even entertain a plausible route to independence at this po- this point and this is really dangerous for the S&P because if no one if not even the S&P can see a plausible route to independence then how can they expect anyone else to see it and the danger is that so many supporters of the S&P haven't really thought this through they haven't really thought well where is this actually going to come from they just think if you keep voting for them it'll happen because no one wants to accept that Scotland has very little agency in this situation. You know, it's a hard thing. If you're a nationalist, if you believe in the, the sovereignty and the, the natural authority of the Scottish people, it's very hard to say, well, actually, we can't really do anything because we don't have the guts. Rory Scoston, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. You can read Rory's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Alex de Waal on the war in Sudan, William Davis on fandom, and Claire Hall on the pre-Socratic philosopher Anaximanda. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.